take a deep breath Take the higher road That's what they always say As if they know the way They won't take it from me But don't ever doubt yourself Cause life ain't just a dream You make your own So kick and scream The people will like With a never ending force You never had the chance So what you waiting for The day has come my friend Cause this is war Welcome to this first edition of Nurses Out Loud. This is Nurse Jody O'Malley. Some of you may know me as the HHS vaccine whistleblower. I secretly recorded patient safety issues that were happening in the hospital and exposed it with Project Veritas. You'll hear more about the Nurses Out Loud mission later in this program, as well as a story that went viral, which thousands of people can relate to concerning a son's journey to save his father from deadly hospital protocols that were actively killing him. We have millions of Americans afraid to go to the hospital. And now my first guest will give us some insight on how President Biden's border crisis is now affecting the safety of our skies. And also joining us on this discussion is a veteran of law enforcement with a career in the Chicago Police Department and Federal Air Marshal Service. Ladies, welcome. Sonia, let's start with you. Tell us about yourself and what you exposed. Well, good morning, Jody, and thank you for hosting us on such an important topic. I always say us whistleblowers have to stick together, right? We're the threat of this country. We're red, white, and blue to the end. So thank you for hosting Karen and I this morning, and we're really glad. We're really glad that we've connected. I mean, we have to keep this type of synergy going within our country to make sure that we are not overrun by those that are not doing the right thing. My career started very long ago, I'm gonna date myself, 1990 at Daytona Beach Police Department. I was a midnight shift sergeant. And then on the morning of 9-11, I came home off a midnight shift, turned the TV on to grab um, some breakfast and saw the first plane hit the Twin Tower. And as I was watching, I watched the second plane hit the Twin Tower and I knew immediately we were under attack. At that point, for everything in my life changed, Um, of course, watching the other two planes hit the Pentagon and then the one that went down in Pennsylvania, um, it was just, as an American, it it ripped my heart completely out that that happened in our own backyard. So I answered the call of duty. There was a a nationwide bolo put out by the federal government. At the time, it was the FAA to join the Air Marshal Service. And I was well into my career at Daytona Beach. And I said, you know what? I have to do this. I have to be able to step up and make a change. This can't happen again. So I joined the Federal Air Marshal Service in 2002. I was hired, went to training, had a a great time during my training program, came out. I was always assigned to the Orlando uh, Orlando International Airport, the Orlando field office. But I knew within about the first two weeks of being actually in the field office after graduating training, I found myself sitting in this huge building. I think our rent was around $75,000 a month. Um, Every bell and whistle that you can imagine as an employee um, to get your job done. 
And I find myself sitting inside this building and I can hear airplanes flying over the building. I can hear them flying over. And I'm thinking, well, we're air marshals. There's about 10 of us in there. Why, why are we not flying? Like, why are the planes going over the building, but we're not sitting on the plane, but I'm sitting here in this plush office. So I go to my supervisor and I said, hey, is there any reason why we're not on the planes flying? Like, I, I want to be up there. This is what I came over to do. And he told me real quick, he said, he says, Hightower, you're going to have to learn to tone it down. You're going to have to learn to tone it down. We're not in Daytona now. You're not, you're not jumping to calls. You're not jumping on the radio. You're going to have to learn to tone it, da- tone it down. When I give you a flight schedule, that's when you're going to fly. Wow. So it set the tone for me right, right away from the very first two weeks I was in the office. And I said, over my dead body, did I come from a great career over to another great organization to have someone tell me what I would or would not do to protect my country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. You answered the call and they're like, you know, just pipe down, just pipe down. Never going to happen. They're never going to pipe me down. They can forget it. As long as they're doing the right thing, we're, we're going we're gonna to get along great. But if they're not doing what our oath said we were going to do, because we took an oath, Karen, you took the same oath. How do you feel about that when you took your oath and came into the agency and saw the things that you saw internally? So I, I have a very similar story to Sonia's because I was a Chicago cop at the time and I was driving to work that morning and I was working in the office. I was doing, we called it furlough relief for the old timers that were up in the commander's office. And I had a friend that was, she, she used to work for the Teamsters. She was a secretary for the Teamsters. And so she, they would always pull her into the office. She was really good at dictation and, and shorthand and all that stuff. And she's like, hey, for the summer, come and work inside. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. Monday through Friday, it'll be nice. Taking me off the street for a minute, you know. And when I was driving to work, same thing. I heard it on the radio. I heard the person I was, the, the show I was listening to was actually kind of interesting because they were, I guess the first plane had hit and they got like a fax or something. Cause they're in a radio studio, you know? And, and they said, um, did you guys get this? Is this for real? Is this, is this really happening? And as I was listening to them kind of figure it out, that's when the second plane hit and they all started screaming on the radio. And of course, you know, the hair stands up on the back of your neck and you're like, what is going on? It's not April fools. Like this is for real. And as I was driving in from not the suburbs, but outside the inner city, I was driving into downtown Chicago and I was like looking at the Sears Tower thinking, I wonder, you know, what is going on? Are we under attack? And, uh, you know, I thought, let me let me get into the the uh, into the office to see what the heck's going on. So we watched um, the commander had it on TV and then we watched the plane hit the Pentagon. And I thought, oh, my God, this is crazy. So we all got deployed. And um, I knew right then and there. And it was kind of a big thing in Chicago when we were all kind of milling around in the few days after that. Everyone was like, we have to go out there. We have to help them. They need help. And there were buses of officers going out there, just directing traffic and helping out. And and it's funny because I was I was scheduled to get married <laughs> two weeks after that. So on the 29th. And um my, my future husband to be at the time was like, you're not going out there. You know, I said, yes, I am. We're going and we're all crying and stuff. And so 
early on, I knew I just wanted to do something bigger, better, more, not just for my city where I grew up in Chicago. I wanted to do something for my country. And so um, I did that. Uh, yeah, I got, I got hired right away and I flew around for a little bit and I kept thinking, is this it? You know, because, you know, we're not making arrests every day, right? It kind of very similar to your story, Sonia. I was just like, is this, is this what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life? And, and then I realized that the time and effort and the energy and everything that we were putting into it wasn't, it wasn't reciprocal in that, um, you know, how pilots have their standards as far as like how many hours they can work. Right. And even flight attendants, if they're, they're working too many hours, they get shut down. And that wasn't the case for us. They were just running us into the ground. And so right away you kind of realized Hold on a second. Something's not right. Um, and then I found out, I said in a couple meetings and operations where they were talking about flying at a hundred percent, I'm like, what does that mean? You know, I was in charge of when I worked in the training department in the New York field office, I was in charge of the post Academy and the pre-academy guys and girls that were coming in, get them squared away before they go to Pletsy, get them squared away, reading their schedules when they come back. And we would get 30 new people and we were always flying at hundred percent. So that told me that it didn't matter how many of us there were, they were just going to keep that schedule. And it, it just wasn't right. It, you know, it, it didn't give us a break, uh, two days off flying for five days and then two days off doesn't give you enough time, you know, to get anything done. You do laundry, get some sleep. And then before you know it, you're packing your bag and you're, you're back on the plane again. So, well, I mean, it doesn't seem very safe to me because you have to stay awake on the flight. Not to account for jet lag and, you know, that that's a lot. I think one thing that we can all agree on is that our government, um, there's a lot of waste, fraud and abuse in, yeah. in our government. Like, you know, I worked for a government uh, federal hospital and, you know, that was one of my uh, disclosures was the waste, fraud and abuse um, aspect of it as well. You know, we we were caring for our nation's highest um, risk population, the Native Americans, and we, we were, if they got intubated, we were shipping them out to uh, private hospitals to be taken care of. Like, why weren't we taken care of? How much money does that cost the taxpayer? Number one, keep us all, you know, to keep us employed. And then now you have a lot of people that are getting shipped out and, and the government, we're guaranteed our 40 hours. So regardless, like when the world shut down and they shut down non-essential surgeries, we, we were just hanging out, literally watching videos at the nurse's station. So yeah, no, I can really relate to, to that aspect of it. And I think there's a point too, and especially with you, Jody as far as sitting around and watching this, knowing that you could do more and be more, right? You're sitting there. This is you in your element as a nurse working and, and trying to provide the best service and you're not allowed to do it. I'm not. And, and just like you guys, we took an oath, right? We yeah. took an oath to protect patients and, and, and it's like, and people, we took an oath to protect people. And here we are in our, you know, completely different, you know, respective careers and, and they're not utilizing us, you know, the way they should and, you know, putting patient safety at risk. So now what's happening now, Sonia, because you're going viral um, on, on the internet, you're getting actually mainstream media news coverage. Yeah. And you know what? I'm very, I'm very thankful for that. I've been a whistleblower 
since 2009 with internally within the agency. And it started off with small things, right? Um, misuse of government vehicles, uh, supervisors not coming to work, not being accountable, taking a two hour lunch and then going to CrossFit for two hours and then come into the office and ride on their bike. I mean, we used to have a group of supervisors that never wanted to go catch a bad guy. They, a, a, a terrorist was the furthest thing away from their mind. That was it. They used to have a group, and I called it the Tour de Fams. They would have 10 of them that would line up on their fancy bicycles. It was during the Tour de France, you know, with Lance Armstrong days. And they're out riding around. You see them all over the city riding in this pack. And I'm thinking, if you were just dedicated to go and catch a bad guy and to get a terrorist, maybe we will never have to look at another 9-11. But there was never that dedication, mm-hmm. right? And I think the common thread here is when we're talking about the government, you have the ability to come into the government and do nothing. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. You can come here and hide for 25 years. You just need to show up. You don't really need to work. No, absolutely. I mean, you, you know, they say it takes a, right. They say it takes an act of Congress to get fired um, from a, a federal job. And they're exactly right. I mean, we, we had people that were getting drunk, you know, that were found in janitor's closets. And you know what they did? They gave them a ride home. <laughs> I mean, hey, I'm surprised they didn't promote them. They, usually in our agency, they get promoted. You, know, you, <laughs> that too. you screw up, you move up. That's just kind of how, how that works. And what's going on now currently uh, the Biting administration has, has put this plan together with Secretary, Secretary Mayorkas that they're calling the Southwest Border Plan, and they're trying to put DHS resources in this plan, and then they've backdoored and put the FAMs in there, the air marshals, and they're taking us off the planes. Now, you'll never see them say that air marshals are doing law enforcement functions at the border. We're doing support functions, which means we're doing hospital watches, transport, uh, any any menial task that an NGO or a contractor could could do, they've got our highly skilled air marshals down on the border doing these tasks. And we have been supplying 150 to 200 a month. Over a thousand air marshals have been pulled off flights and sent to the border. And we're going to be doing this well into 2023. Now, where are our marshals do we have? Well, that's a classified. I can't give you the number, but I can tell you after 9-11, we were at our peak time for air marshals. We are nowhere near that now. Couple of factors there. Number one, most people hit their 20 year retirement. Think of 9-11 in 2021, they were eligible to retire and a lot of them did. Our agency did not backfill those positions. They haven't hired very, very few air marshals, not like when we first started. So our agency through the last uh, 24 months has been depleted only because of its own growth, right? You, you do your 20, you pop smoke and you're out of here. So we have a backfill position. So now we're taking all the current positions that we have and we're going to remove those resources for a minimum of 21 days. Now, if you think about air marshals, just doing the math, if they just covered a couple of flights a day per air marshal, think of how many flights that we've dropped by sending a thousand air marshals down to the border for 21 day rotations. That's right, because you're also not on the flight by yourself, right? You have to have a partner with you. Our team, that's correct. We, we never fly alone, but we do fly in teams. You fly in teams. Wow. I mean, why is this happening? I mean, this is our busiest time of the year for travel. It is. And we've already had several incidents. Look, we, 
We're not saying that, hey, there's something that could happen. It's already happened. We had a level four incident on uh, Saturday last weekend with the Southwest pilot. He called a level four, which is the highest threat level on an aircraft that you can get. That means someone tried to breach the cockpit. He called air traffic control and locked the cockpit down. We had two level threes prior to that. One of the level threes means that that's the third high with the air traffic control based by the FAA. One had a um, edged weapon. He had a straight razor to a passenger's throat on the plane. The second one was a box cutter, two box cutters that got through the multi-layered security we have at TSA, right? Got through the security and it's not being reported, but that guy with the box cutter, he was actively standing up with that box cutter threatening people. So that's a life-threatening behavior. Those are very serious, serious incidents. We're already seeing the effects of taking the air marshals off. Now take them off long-term until 2023. We, we don't know what's going to happen and we don't want to find out because we know what 9-11 looks like. Yeah, right. So we, we have 87,000 armed IRS agents. What, are they doing anything about trying to take away those funds and, and have more air marshals? I do think that Congress is definitely working on the IRS agents. And I do think now bringing this to the forefront, and that's why it's so important for us to speak out when we see something that's not right, even if it's not going to be popular with many in our own group that just want to stay quiet and keep under the radar, right? They're like, oh, I don't want any heat. I just want to do my 20. I want to do my 21. I want to get out. We can't afford to do that for our country. We have to speak up. Yeah, absolutely. We have to speak up. Karen, you have a a business, Guardian Training Services in in Arizona. And that's how you and I met just a couple of weeks ago when I wanted to brush up on my firearm handling skills. Uh, You know, tell us a little bit about that and and your passion on um, having a, a business to educate people. As soon as I saw you, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm like, where do I know you from? And we had that conversation about Chicago because you said, well, I'm from Chicago. I said, I am too. But you said, I'm from the North side. I'm like, well, I'm from the South side. And if anyone knows anything about the rivalry in Chicago, it's kind of funny. It's it's like, you think you're on another planet. Um, But yeah, I thought, where do I know you from? And when you told me that you were, and I've seen the videos and I'm like, oh my God, I've seen that undercover video. That was you. And so it all kind of clicked. But yeah, it's, it's so great to be able to take what the knowledge and the, the, um, the skills and abilities that I have, instead of letting it just kind of fall by the wayside, be able to share it and teach people how to protect themselves. And it's my kind of journey through life of what, you know, what does it all mean? And let's take something that wasn't so great and turn it into something good. And, and how can I, how can I help people? And that's, Honestly, without getting all spiritual, it's like my, um, you can get spiritual on this program. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I don't want to sound kooky, but you know, sometimes you do get kind of down and out, right? I do. I I can admit it. You know, what is it all for? What what does this mean? What, why are we here? And it's to help people take what you have and share it. And so that's what I'm doing with guardian is I'm helping to empower women Um, from women who are like petrified at the thought of having to protect themselves to women that have been doing it their whole lives, but honing in those skills. And so, you know, we started doing the women's uh, only it's like ladies night 
and you know, you had, you brought your friend, one of your nurse friends and she was awesome. And I, and I just love meeting new people and sharing our experiences and making it a better place. And, you know, and it, meeting you was just like, it was like a grand slam. I was like, Oh my God, I can't, I feel like I'm in, in, uh, you know, in, in, you know, with a celebrity here, this is amazing. I had to not get starstruck with you. Oh, you're um, so cute. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's honestly, so important. We all have, I think we all have that, that fire and that passion where we just want to do the right thing. I was always taught as a kid, be honest, have integrity, the truth will set you free and do the right thing. And I think when it comes to working with these government agencies, it's not that difficult to do the right thing. And why does it get so muddied? Why does it get to a point where we were hired to do a job and to do something for humanity, really? I mean, from nursing to law enforcement, that's what we're doing. We're helping humanity. We're helping to keep law and order and help keep people safe. And the fact that we can't do that without stumbling and, and, and having that internal strife and struggle with, with the integrity and dealing with corruption and it's about money. And, and I just, it makes me nauseous. And to, to meet the good part of this is meeting women like both of you um, keeps me sane and keeps me waking up going, you know what, we're going to keep fighting and we're going to keep doing the right thing and pass that, that um, work ethic, if you call it a work ethic, pass that on to the younger generation and let them know that, you know, we are here to make a difference and it doesn't matter what the supervisors say, cause they're just kind of following a protocol, but we are the ones that are doing the job, right? How many times have we heard that with our supervisors? They get hired as a supervisor and then all of a sudden you're just toeing the line and you lose yourself. You lose the, the reason why you took the job in the first place. Yeah. And I think that we will always be, you know, Sonia can, in uh, probably relate to this is being a cop's cop, right? Or like a supervisor who really just kind of was part of the crew, part of the 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 force, the workforce, right? The, the foot soldiers that are doing the job, the hard work every single day. If you had a supervisor that, that rode on those planes with you, then man, they just got all of your uh, respect and they made it a better place. They made going to work actually fun and made it feel worthwhile. So, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. the same in the nursing community, you know, um, like you said, uh, when, when they put me as hospital supervisor throughout the pandemic, that was the first time I had ever done the job. But, you know, people respected me because I would get in there and help them. I would admit their patient. I would, you know, hang a bag of uh, antibiotics for them. I, I could relate and I could understand. And, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we got, you know, one minute left here, ladies. Um, I want to I want to give you the floor, Sonia. You know, the one thing I think it's very important to point out when I when I switched over from my career to go to the government, I always looking I was always looking on the outside for the bad guys. I was trying to go after the bad guys. I had no idea that the bad guys were going to be the ones working in my office. So that was the big switch that that I want others to know that um, you're not alone out there. It can be really tough, but God bless you when you get your voice, stand up and do what's right for our country. 
Yeah. Amen. Amen. I, I, you know, I, I think it's going to be whistleblowers that are really going to change this narrative. You know, we just had one come out with Project Veritas about uh, the sex trafficking on the border. You have a little bit of insight on that, Sonia? The yeah, trafficking? I do. I work with a lot of human trafficking survivors here uh, in the central Florida area. You know, human trafficking is $150 billion a year business. That's a massive amount of money. And the, the unfortunate thing is the commodity is a human, is a human being and it's modern day slavery. Um, and I'm so thankful for Project Veritas, for you, Jody, for Karen, the people that are out here trying to, um, we're trying to do away with evil. We really are trying to combat evil. Uh, and we have to keep bringing the good and God, God bless the good Lord for giving us the strength to do it. Yeah. Amen to that. I, you know, I tell people all the time, we are in a war of good and evil. And if you really look at that from like a human perspective, you know, no matter what you think or feel, as long as you have some kind of morals, um, you, you, you feel that, right. You feel that energy that is pervasive throughout every single system and in, in our in our world you know and and we need to to step up and speak up and and come together because there's a lot more of us than them hey and what i say we're in god's army now <laughs> amen i love it well speaking of god's army guys you know since i blew the whistle i have met so many amazing nurses you know, everybody is asking, where are the nurses at? Where are the nurses at? Well, America Out Loud gave us a platform to come together. It's the first ever nurse show that will air Monday through Friday on America Out Loud network, talk radio, and also a variety, every podcast that you can imagine that's available, um, iHeartRadio, our world-class media player. But what has happened um, since my exposure is meeting some amazing nurses that are doing amazing things. We have um, Nurse April, who designed human body simulators to teach people disease processes. We have Nurse Kimberly, who founded Nurse Freedom Network and whose mission is to gather all the nurses that want to escape the hospital system, the sick care system is what I call it, and train them in functional medicine and actually be able to have your own practice. We have Nurse Michelle, who has, uh, has been advocating for vaccine injuries because she has a vaccine injury daughter for the last six years through that process in the court. And when COVID came out, she uh, exposed or she started teaching on hospital protocols uh, or not hospital protocols, excuse me. She started teaching on early treatment protocols and has helped thousands of people get early treatment. And then we also have nurse Cami and Emily. They are both brand new nurses, um, about a year under their belt. But when they were set to graduate last December with three clinical shifts left and the vaccine mandate came down, the school told them that they could not graduate unless they took the experimental injection. And they fought it and won in federal court. 
So we, we have just a great group of nurses and I am so excited and so thankful that finally we are given a chance to speak uncensored from the heart, from a nurse's heart and, and share you know, everything with you. Nurses just don't work in hospitals. Nurses are the pillars of the community in many, many different ways. And we hope that this show incites people to step up and speak up and honor their ethical principles and their oaths that they took. We've been talking about patient safety issues, human safety issues, sex trafficking, air safety issues, And on this back end, we're going to hear from a son who video documented his father's journey through the deadly hospital protocols and um, exposed it on social media. And thank God they haven't censored it yet. We'll be right back. It's time and spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America out loud. We are the voice of a nation, the American nation that is. This is Malcolm Out Loud. I invite you back to AmericaOutloud.com where the fight for liberty and justice continues. America Out Loud Talk Radio. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com, where we're healing America one person at a time. Welcome back. Thank you for joining me on this first edition of Nurses Out Loud. We are so blessed to join the lineup of shows and the opportunity to speak uncensored on AmericaOutloud.com. Nurses Out Loud airs weekdays at 10 a.m. Monday through Friday. And this segment, we'll be talking to a courageous young man who documented his father's journey with covid in our U.S. hospital system. I came across his viral video with over a million views and I'm honored he and his father are joining us today. 
Connor, I want to bring you on first with us. Tell us what happened to make you pull out your phone and start recording. Hey, Jody, how's it going? Thanks for having us. So what originally caused me to pull out my phone was when we, my dad walked into the hospital. He was actually fine at first with no pneumonia and a clear chest x-ray when he arrived. And we wanted to trust and believe in the doctors and the experts. And we allowed them to begin their protocols. And my dad just continued to go downhill day by day um, through the treatments they were giving him. And on my Instagram platform, I had a lot of people reaching out to me giving me other information on potential treatments that were being suppressed and not allowed to be prescribed at the hospital. And the big red flag for me was when I went in there and they told me that there was nothing more they can do and that my dad wasn't gonna make it. And I was begging them to try these treatments and they refused, yet they were completely out of options and just didn't have the ability or weren't willing to try anything else. I felt voiceless and helpless. And I felt like what I was hearing from a bunch of people was actually now happening to me in the hospital with my family. And the camera was the only way I could think of to give myself a voice and to capture the reality of what was actually going on so that one day I could share it and show people the truth. It's so powerful, right? I mean, you know, I I remember a part of your video where the doctor was like, said to you in the hallway, he wouldn't be in this mess if he was vaccinated or something to that effect. Yeah. He, uh, so I was actually begging him to try vitamin C, vitamin D and zinc, which are basic vitamins that I feel like should be offered immediately if someone's requesting them. And also on top of this, the first week my dad was in the hospital, he was dehydrated, malnourished. His nutrition had just completely tanked and he, his body had no chance to fight is what it was looking like. And that's what was happening. And so I went out into the hallway and again, tried to confront the doctor and beg them to try something different. And that's when he told me, you know, at the stand, he said, this is the standard of procedure. And I was like, the standard of procedure isn't working. We have to try something else. We have to do anything we can because my dad's life is on the line and the moments are counting down. And that's when he told me, you know, the standard of procedure is he should have been vaccinated. And that just felt like such a slap in the face because here I am begging you to try simple vitamins and uh, treatments you're telling me you're out of options. There's nothing else you can do. I'm bringing you options with science behind it. And you're still refusing to let us try. I also told them that I would sign whatever I needed to, uh, to, to allow this to happen. And it was a brick wall. There was no way around it. So as when he came in the hospital, he was not needing oxygen. When did he start requiring oxygen? So, so, when he first walked in, they did a chest x-ray, clear, no pneumonia. They said he was fine. They asked him if he was if he was vaccinated or not. And he told them no. And that's when they started encouraging to take 
uh, casavirumab, which is one of the monoclonal antibodies. And they told him that because he's not vaccinated, he's in a big danger and that taking this would prevent death is how they presented it pretty much. He took the infusion. Also, they brought him back there alone. So he's very sick, not feeling well. He doesn't have anyone to advocate for him. And he kind of gets pushed into this corner like you should take this treatment, which is experimental at the time. And uh, an hour after the infusion, they called us and said we were supposed to pick him up after this infusion and send him on his way. And they called us and said he can't leave. He's digressed. He's gone downhill a little bit. He And then it turned into he needs to spend the night. Then it turned into another night. Then it turned into remdesivir. They gave him seven-day treatment of remdesivir. And within days, his lungs filled with fluid um, and his oxygen went down terribly day by day to the point where I, I saw it in the 60s. He wow. was oxygenating in the 60s. Um, so I'd say within, he showed up clear chest x-ray and within, um, a few days, three days of, uh, being in their care, he was in some dangerous waters. And, and how long did it take for him to neg? Did they progress with the oxygen? Was it a nasal cannula, high flow nebulizer, or, you know, um, bicap? Exactly. They went through all the steps and just a little background. I was actually, I live in Colorado. This was all going on in New York and we were communicating through family group chats and everyone, we were, it was being like downplayed because my dad walked into the hospital pretty, he just wanted some fluids, you know, he was feeling sick, but he didn't need oxygen. He, it was not like that. And um, we're communicating through text message, kind of hoping that oh, it's just going to be a few more hours. He'll be out. Oh, he'll be out tomorrow. You know, he'll be out the next day. And he just progressed through all the oxygen um, needs. And to the point where they were, they told him that he they need to move him into the ICU to control his demise. And that if he has any family, he should reach out to make arrangements and that they were sorry. There was nothing else they can do. Wow. And right. I flew home in the middle of the night and went right into the hospital. And that's when I started questioning things in person. And once I was there in person, you could just feel the energy in the room that something wasn't adding up. And to me, this is basically simply what it was. These doctors and nurses are there every day dealing with all this, fighting to try to save people. And I, it felt like they weren't going home and staying up all night and reading studies and connecting with people around the world. They were kind of going home and taking care of their families and then coming back into work the next day and just following the same protocol. And I'm here up all night researching because I can't sleep and communicating with people around the world and getting this information. So you could feel in the room that I had more information and knowledge about these treatments than they did. And that just didn't make sense. Why am I the one that has to bring in the science and why am I the one finding potential treatment options? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's how I felt. I mean, from, from March of 2020 and I heard that, you know, we're shutting down air, you know, uh, planes and everybody's supposed to stay home and non-essential surgeries. 
And I literally looked up to heaven and I said to the Lord, I'm supposed to pay attention to this part, right? And, and, and that was just for my faith, you know, growing up and, and knowing biblical prophecy and stuff. I mean, it hit me like a ton of bricks and like you, that's all I did. I just educated myself. I got off of dating apps. I mean, I was like, I, I mean, I had blinders on essentially, and I spend my time work night shifts. So there was a lot of downtime and I'm constantly looking at studies and sharing it with my colleagues. And, and they're like, uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. but at that point, everybody was just like waiting for this vaccine. Right. And then yeah. it comes out and it's failing time and time again. And I'm telling people like, Hey, Hey, it's not working. You know, so-and-so got it three times already, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's or, or tested positive three times, I should say. So I, I, I feel you and I commend you for that. And you're a thousand percent right, Connor. The medical community did not do the research. They literally succumbed to propaganda messaging. And then when they had their paychecks, dangled over their head and their hundreds of thousands of dollars in um, student loans to pay back for this education, they literally, I, I feel like it was just willful ignorance. So I I'm, I apologize on behalf of the community because that should not have been the case. You should not have had to go out and do all this research when every single American was either affected or possibly could be affected by this, right? You're not looking for this rare cancer and being like, hey, I I saw this study out of Sweden. You know what I mean? This is something every American was dealing with. Exactly. And when countless people are all pointing towards the same treatment, screaming from the rooftops, And then once you're in the hospital and you try to bring that up, it just gets shut down. That doesn't make sense. How could so many people be pointing at the same thing? And another thing is the whole world is facing this at the same time and fighting it, not censoring people and stopping the lines of communication. Um, And also it felt as if they, they were like laughing at me that I would even think to bring up something like this. And that didn't feel right either because I'm like, my dad's dying right now and I'm bringing you potential options and you're just shaking your head and kind of laughing me off. Yeah. Yeah. Horrible. Especially when you're asking for, for um, medications and vitamins that have a long safety profile. It's not like you were trying to experiment on your dad, like we've done with all the Americans. Exactly. Exactly. I I felt like they were experimenting. So why can't we experiment what we want to try? And another big thing, a red flag for me was, well, I spoke to the infectious disease doctor and I was begging her to try And at one point, she just tells me this was over the phone. She goes, I've had COVID twice. I know how bad it is. And I was like, okay, but, and then I go, what did you use to treat yourself? And there was an awkward silence. And I was like, what did you use? And she goes, I use hydroxychloroquine, but it's not going to work for your father. 
And now I was like, wait, what? I was like, you're here to tell us the story. And she goes, yeah, but studies have come out since showing that it could be harmful. And I, then I was like, what studies? Can you please provide these studies for me? Because all the studies I'm reading are saying that it could work. And they couldn't provide any studies. She told me she'd have to get back to me next week. I'm like, we don't have till next week. Right, have, right, right. That's the whole point. And the study that she's referring to is out of the Lancet. Which and it got Exactly. And I yeah. knew all that too. And I told her that I was like well, the Lancet one that was retracted and, and it was very clear that there was a, um, a miscommunication amongst everyone and everything. And it was, uh, it was demonized and the blinders came on and it was like, no one even wanted to talk about it or think about it, you know? Mm -hmm. And like nurses couldn't be caught talking about it. Exactly. Yeah. So, so you, you know, you told me also, or I seen in the video, the, you were writing letters. I mean, you, you got these doctors email addresses and you were blowing them up. So you were talking Mm -hmm. to them in person. You were, you know, emailing them. And then uh, you said, um, what was the, tell us a story about when you threatened to expose this to social media. So first the emailing thing, I, again, I kept feeling voiceless. Like I wasn't being heard and I was being brushed off. So I wanted to get stuff in writing. You know, I wanted these specific doctors to have an email coming directly to them of me begging them to try because other, it felt like they could just say whatever they want to deflect. And I wanted it. I wanted to do whatever I could to get their attention. The story is interesting. We actually, my dad was in two separate hospitals while he was um, on the ventilator. And the first hospital didn't have an ECMO machine, which for those who don't know, it's it's a potential option. It's a machine that only some hospitals have. And they say it's better because it causes less damage on the lungs and the throat than the ventilator. So I wanted to give him that option. And I knew the hospital didn't have it. So I was asking the hospital to transfer him to a different hospital with an ECMO machine because they didn't have the capabilities or the machinery to give my dad every possible chance. So I was pushing for that. And that was the same time I was in the hallway with the doctor, brought up the vitamins, the ivermectin and the transfer. He told me that he should have been vaccinated. And then I realized you're denying you're not going to transfer my dad because he wasn't vaccinated. And I said, I'm going to start publishing this information to my platforms. And there was this he got very frustrated and angry and walked away we walked away we're like oh what do we do my mom gets a a call two minutes later they ask her to come upstairs my mom goes up there they say you can't be having your son and your kids because it was me and my two sisters in there like going after the doctor and they said you can't have them up here threatening us like that and but a helicopter's on its way So they went from no hospital will accept him and he won't survive the transfer. And once I 
threatened them with that. The helicopter was there in less than 10 minutes. They rushed him to a different hospital. The receiving doctor at the new hospital said he was blue when she got him and they had no idea if he would make it, but they rushed him into surgery anyways. They got him on the ECMO machine and that stabilized him enough so I could then try to fight to get ivermectin at this new hospital you know it was almost like he was on the ventilator and he was crashing and we got him a second chance by getting him to this new hospital getting him on the ecmo and that bought us more time to fight to get different treatments and we also fought to get different tube feeding feeding healthy organic whole foods rather than the garbage food that they feed you uh, in the hospital. Oh, wow. <laughs> you, you just fascinate me. I, I you know what, having said that, uh, I'm going to bring in your father, John. <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, Connor, how old are you? Uh, 30. I turned 30, 30 years old. You remind me of my son. He just turned 31 years old. And let me tell you, I don't know what we did, John, to raise these fine young men, but my gosh, he is blowing me away. Yeah, very lucky. Very lucky to have him. Yeah, talking about <laughs> yeah. talking about ECMO, like how did you, you know, uh, you, you must have been, you know, researching a lot. <laughs> well, it was, you know, his ability to reach out and communicate with other people and people sending him ideas. And most of the ideas that he got were from just regular, ordinary people, not medical people. So, uh, you know, it's hard. If you really look at that picture and you say, uh, you're going to go up against the doctor and question their methods or protocol, uh, you got to have some huspa or something behind you to to do that, you know, and it's like you're you're all in because it's a life or death situation. And uh, I'm very proud of them and my whole family. Uh, they all work together and uh, it, it, it was a force to be reckoned with. And I'm lucky to have it because otherwise I wouldn't be here talking to you guys now yeah amen amen so connor quickly tell tell us about how you got the ivermectin and what the ivermectin did yeah so again i was pulling everything out of my hat that i could to try to get to these people emailing printing out studies highlighting them bringing them in with food patient advocacy it's kind of like a game of chess because I need these people to continue fighting for my dad and I need them to push through the treatments and stuff. And I don't want to attack them, but I need to come at them with some force and some knowledge. I had to build up vocabulary so that they would take me serious. Um, Like literally you learned another language. Literally. I, I was up all night just researching. I knew they wouldn't take me serious unless I came Correct. You know, so I had to get their attention. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting how we finally got the ivermectin. As you know, the doctors change, they change every week in the ICU. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning of the week, I was working with this one doctor trying to convince them again, their, their excuse was always, there's not enough science 
to support it. Yet they were giving remdesivir without a problem. And ivermectin has way more science behind it than remdesivir does and positive science with less harmful, toxic side effects. So I was writing stuff like that in the emails. Can you please tell me why we gave my dad remdesivir, which is known to shut down his kidneys, which is exactly what happened to him, but you refused to let us try this. And I also brought up the price of remdesivir versus the price of ivermectin in the emails. And, uh, one day I went into the ICU late at night and the, no one's really there. It's kind of a ghost town. It's like nine, nine 30 at night. I start talking to the nurse that's taking care of my dad. We're having a conversation. I ask him what he knows about ivermectin. He tells me he doesn't know much, but he's waiting for it right now because they're bringing it up. And I go, what do you mean? They're bringing it up. They're going to give it to him. And I'm like, no one ever told me. No one ever agreed. No one ever notified us. No one said anything. They're just bringing it up in the middle of the night to give it to him without notifying us. Luckily, I was there. I went in. I watched him get his first dose. Me and my sister, Christy, were there. And we left that night looking back up at my dad's hospital room because we hung lights in there, knowing like, all right, we at least got him the medicine and we've done everything we could. And now it's in God's hands and we got to see what happens. And uh that was on a Friday. And then the, the doctors are empty on the weekend or the hospital's kind of empty on the weekend. And I never saw, we never saw that doctor again. So the doctor who called it in, um, I was emailing him. He never, he never responded in emails. He, but he did call in this medicine and it feels like an angel almost, or um, it's just a really unique odd experience because I feel like they felt our pain and our suffering and our relentlessness. And I think his hands were tied for sure. The interesting thing is he was an Indian doctor and I know that India is using ivermectin with a lot of success. So I wonder, and I mentioned that stuff. So I wonder if somehow he kind of believed deep down that maybe it could help my dad and kind of prescribed it and just disappeared, you know? Yeah. Right. Or, or at this point, how many days was he in the hospital before he got that? Approximately. Uh, approximately close to a month, but a, uh, yeah, I'll probably a, a little, a little under a month, a couple of days. And after he received his uh, first dose, let's say, um, when did you start seeing him come around? So, well, within two days, less than two days, um, we started suctioning blood out of his lungs. And we were asking the doctors, is this something you've seen before? Do you know what this is? And they were like, no, we don't know what this is. Mind you, my dad was the first and only person they ever gave ivermectin. So we were all in like new territory. And we're like, is this bad? Is this good? We don't know what's going on. Now I kind of believe that maybe it was some micro blood clots in his lungs that I believe the medicine was breaking up and pulling out of his lungs. And then his lungs started to improve and clear a little bit. And within two weeks, they dialed back on the ventilator and the ECMO and were able to start waking him up out of the coma. And he got ivermectin for five days, 12 milligrams a day for five days. We started seeing changes in his body within two days, less than two days but he's still in a coma. So you can't talk to him. You can't, you don't know 
if yeah. what's really happening. So we waited it out. And then the doctor started seeing signs where they believed they could start weaning them off these machines. And every step of the way, he just tolerated it incredibly well. And it seemed like his lungs just magically got better or the, the medicine did exactly what the science says it does, you know? Yeah. That, that's just, yeah, it's amazing. I, you know, we've seen it work over and over again. And John, I mean, I know that you have a long road ahead of you with recovery and stuff, but I mean, praise God you're here, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. It's, uh, uh, many people were telling me like, oh, you're like a miracle. And then even, like people in the hospital, my family, the nurses, the doctors, therapy people. And then after a while, it just started sinking in. It, it really truly is, you know. Mm -hmm. so, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people didn't have the the same outcome as I did, you know. And even like when I go to the doctors now, they really don't know like what to do with me with the treatments because they said pretty much everybody that was like you or in your situation or that deep into the the virus, like they didn't survive. So they're still trying to figure out like things that are going on with me, you know, because I've been affected from head to toe right. and all my organs and my extremities and my feet and my hands, and my stomach, my organs. So it's like, you have to go to a lot of different doctors that don't have many answers. And so I was just going to say, and then we're back in that same like catch 22 where it's like, you're going back to the doctors that you already just realized don't know what's going on about COVID, but you still are having these issues and these symptoms and you're trying to find answers, but you truth has been very difficult to find these days. You know? That's right. It's been censored. Yeah. And it's, and it's horrible. Um, you know, I, I pray for complete healing over you, John. And, and I know that it's a, a very, arduous war road that you've had, you know, and that you've been on for this last year. And, um, you know, I, I bled, pray for complete healing and I claim that in, in Jesus's name. And, um, I'm, I'm so honored to have talked to both of you. Sadly, there are thousands of stories like this and we want to hear from you. Go to americaoutloud.com guys. And go to the show nerd or go to the show tab and click on Nurses Out Loud. We are in a war for truth, in a war to fight against propaganda, in a war to defend and advocate for the patient and our community. Listen to Nurses Out Loud at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on America Out Loud World Class Media Player. You can also listen to us on iHeartRadio, Apple, Alexa, and numerous other shows. All of our shows go to podcasts. I'm your host, Nurse Jody O'Malley, and you can join me every Friday at 10 a.m. Tune in as we shine the light in the darkness. It's time.